Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, um, Imperial Museum special number three. Um, uh, When we're discussing what to do here, I said we're going to squeeze the lemon really hard, there's loads of pips. And we're here with James, of course, who's he's, he's basically struck dumb by this object, he's just perusing it. And we're joined again by John Delaney, who is head of Second World War and mid-20th century Conflict. Conflict. Absolutely yes. correct. 1929 1949. to 1949. Okay. And we are, you, well, earlier on, when we, were, when we were wandering around and we've looked at the V weapons, we've looked at the Spitfire, we looked at Monty's Humber, I said, what's your favourite piece in here? And you've, you've had a lifetime of working with these large objects. 26 years. 26 yeah. years. Well, <laughs> Almost, yeah. Uh, yeah well, makes me I mean, feel very old. You'd be a very old dog <laughs> if you'd lived to 26 years. Um, you, you, um, uh, you, this is your this is your favourite object. This Tell us what it is. Take object. us through it. This Go on. is the nose section of a Lancaster One that flew with four six seven squadron in the Second World War, uh, codenamed uh, Fred the Fox. Well, nicknamed Fred the Fox because it was F in the sequence of letters for the squadron, so it was F for Foxtrot. Does uh, that make it Australian or Canadian? Very good. It was a it was a, it was a British squadron that was primarily put together to train Australians up to form the core nucleus of the Royal Australian Air Force the bomber force, yep. uh, so five out of the seven crew uh, for this aircraft were Australian, two were British. So the navigator, the pilot, 
it's easier to say which ones weren't British. The, the, the mid-upper gunner was British and the bomb aimer was British. Everybody else was Australian, was Australian. on this group. And that's, a, that's an interesting thing as well about the RAF Bomber Command principally, but all through the RAF in the Second World War, in that there's this mix of nationalities. Yep. Everybody from all across the different nations of the Commonwealth and, and other places. Yeah. As long as they were good, it was a very meritocratic organisation. They could do the job they were in. They could do the job they were in. So a friend of mine, a friend of mine's um, uh, uh, father, who was a Glaswegian who then moved to Tasmania, was in a coastal command bomber aircraft, a, gun, a tail gunner in one of in one of those, and, and and flew on the Hamburg raid when they were making up the numbers. Wow. Yeah. So, so why do you love this object so much? Well, because of the personal stories that, that are involved with it, we know the names of all the individuals, we know their background histories, we know the mi numbers of missions they flew. We they all made it through? They all made it through. The aircraft did 49 missions wow. and then was retired from, which is a long mission count yep. for an aircraft to survive, yep. um, uh, and then was retired and actually went to Australia on a sort of fundraising, morale boosting, and at that point the guys who'd done their 50 by then, yeah. didn't have to go back, which was obviously not normally the case with an RAF Bomber Command uh, 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 personnel. If you did your tour, you survived your tour, and you were ju judged to be fit enough, you did another one after a few, you know, you had, you had a yeah. bit of time off, but you went back. But in this case, the guys didn't, so they all survived the war. Um, and some, you know, they, they, some of the missions, they, they did 16 Berlin runs. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, the thing, looking at it out, I mean, what, I find just so amazing is on the one level it's incredibly complex on the other level it just absolutely isn't and you know these things were designed for one thing and one thing only it's not built dropping, for comfort you know, no. it's for dropping bombs and you look at this this is so thin the yeah. metal on the side of it it's so the, the, the concessions to human comfort are so minimal there's only one pilot seat there's not two pilot there's not a pilot and a co-pilot there's a little dicky seat on the on the right there um you know, look at it. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? And what you're not getting here is the two wing spars that you have to clamber over so you get on which the are where we, Which are where we are here. Okay, they would be yeah, here, yeah. yeah. And you've got to clamber over that to sort of get to that bit. I mean, it's just... It's so sort of thin and, and rattly and kind of Heath Robinson in many ways. But, you know... Yeah. It absolutely does what it's supposed to do with bells on. How many hours w was a Lancaster airframe expected to last? What were they built for? Not sure exactly how many hours uh, an aircraft would be expected to last, but it was highly unusual for an aircraft to last more than six months on operational service. They, they just didn't. This aircraft had uh, gained the reputation within the squadron of being a veteran aircraft after 22 missions, just about three and a half months in. Right. So it had done three and a half months and people in the squadron were beginning to think this is an old girl who's made it this far. And because it was an old girl who had made it this far, it be became seen as a lucky aircraft. Yeah. So it was one that people wanted to be on, even though actually it was probably the worst condition aircraft by the time yeah, it yeah, got to yeah, the end of it. Yeah, because so stress and strain on the airframe. And, uh, when the squadron used to go up to form up to then move off into the, into the bomber stream, after about 30 missions, this aircraft became so, so unreliable in terms of its rate of climb that it got in the way of everybody else. So they used to send it off in a different direction to climb to the right altitude and say, you come and join us when, you, when you've got to the altitude. Even so, the crew wanted to be on this aircraft because it was a lucky aircraft. Dear God. <laughs> it's things, absolutely amazing. Things people end up thinking, eh? I know. Right, I um, know. We're looking at the radio operator here. So, yes, that's right. So, and that's the navigator's seat next, yep. next along. And then, like James says, there's the pilot because because it's the because it's the souped-up Manchester after all. With it is indeed. Engines. So the pilot flight engineer, which we talked about at um, uh, uh, the RAF 
BBMF that they run it with two pilots now, the, the, yep. the one they've yeah. got. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and down the there's the, the bomb aimer, aimer the and, then the yeah. nose, and then there's n nose gun. Should we go, should we walk sure. around the... Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm just looking about this, and I, I just can't help thinking about Norman Jackson, the wing walker, yeah. who gets his VC. And I mean, you know, every time you read it, you literally no, it just, can't doesn't, believe what It doesn't happened. make any sense. So, so, <laughs> so he, they get attacked and... Um, I can't remember, is he one of the gunners or is he the radio operator? I can't remember. But anyway, he, he, they go out, he comes out, I think he goes out of that hatch above behind the pilot's seat there. Yep. So what happens, they get hit, the engine's an engine on, on fire, fire. Yeah. in a really bad way. If you look just right, very quickly, just go back again, you can see these two fire extinguishers. I mean, they're, they're pretty yeah. feeble. Anyway, yeah. so he tucks one of those inside his Irvin, um, his sheepskin jacket, and they undo his parachute and hold him yeah. while he climbs out of the still flying but burning Lancaster at 22,000 feet or whatever it is. And, and they lower him onto the wing and he's got an axe that he uses to kind of crawl along. And at one point he falls off and they get attacked <laughs> and he manages to get back on the wing, pull out the fire extinguisher, put out the fire, then they get attacked again and at that point he falls off. And disappears down yeah. into the ether and they think oh bye bye Norman that's it but actually the parachute opens still and he becomes a prisoner of war and that's that anyway you know at the end of the war he comes back and um, and uh, they kind of you know realises that he's already fated and this story yeah. of his heroism yeah, yeah, yeah. He get, he's been, been awarded the, the VC and he gets his um, he gets invested with the VC at the same time as um, Leonard Cheshire, but because Leonard right. Cheshire of higher rank, Leonard Cheshire is supposed to get his VC before Norman Jackson, and Cheshire goes, "No, you go first Amazing. because of what you did." And I mean, just imagine crawling out of a Lancaster at the top of a Lancaster while it's flying, while it's on fire. I'd rather not. I'd, be honest, I'd rather not imagine that. I mean, that's, just, <laughs> that's just absurd, isn't it? Yeah. So, so here we have. So the, these roundels. Yeah, these, these are the, the forty-nine flying. mission markings that it, that it took on, and this is the. The nickname of the aircraft that they called it. Oh, they called it after it was POF in the squadron, so right. it became Fred the Fox for Foxtrot. So a relatively straightforward. Oh yeah, and there's the Aussie flag. And there's the Aussie flag next to it. Old Fred, because it's old this Fred, old plane. Because the old plane. It's the old, old dependable uh, Lancaster that got them. I say got them to Berlin 16 times and back. At Berlin. Bit of Irish linen well, patching it up there. How long a round trip's Berlin? That's like a. It's going to be a nine hour. It's a nine ten, ten hour, hour round trip, yeah. isn't it? Long way and a drip tray, reassuringly. <laughs> this plane does have a drip tray, unlike the Spitfire. And then, and now we're at the now we're at the bomb aimer, and, and and you can hear there's some AV in the museum around us. You might yeah. hear little voices chipping in. So we've got the we've got the upper gun turret, yeah, yeah. Or the nosed gun the turret, nose gun turret yeah. twin three three Brownings, yeah. And then is that the Mark fourteen? That's the Mark fourteen Sperry gun uh, bomb sight. Yep, that he's got there, uh, which is pretty much as good as the Norden one, really. There's not the a American, lot in it. The Americans wouldn't give us the Norden one, so we had yeah. we, we sort of made do. <laughs> but it, as you say, it was a good bomb sight. The Blackett sight. Yeah. So how does it? Is it a computer? Is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah, effectively. There's an, there's an analog computer. It's, it looks rather like a very large briefcase. You can't actually quite see it because it's in the dark. Um, but it looks like a rather large briefcase. It's an analogue computer. Lots yep. and lots of whirring cogs uh, uh, to make your calculations on. A, a simplified version of the Norden, basically. It's basically it's good, to be honest. There's not, yeah. not a lot And it, it calculates... You, you tell it where you want to drop the bomb, it calculates the parabola and, yeah. and height and wind and all that. It and takes into account the wind speed, wind direction, yeah. because, of yeah. course, you, know, you don't know what direction the wind's coming from when you're going into the run. Yeah. Uh, you, your speed will be a variable. 
It worked, didn't it? I mean, it was an effective bomb site for the oh, time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, we're only trying to hit. <laughs> we're only trying to hit a small city yeah. <laughs> or a, or, a, or yeah. a factory. I mean, a lot of the aircraft would have been um, using G and and yes. or H two S to get them to the right place. To those to who don't know, G G is G is a radio uh, navigational direction system so where it's a beam. there's a beam and you, yep. you fly along a beam basically. And if you fly too far one side, you get a, a, you get a, a dot. Get and a, if you go the other way, you get a dash. That's right. You yeah. get, and then you can tell you're on by, by what you're getting. And H2S is a very very basic form of ground surveying radar. Yep. yep. Which which really re um, reflects water though. So water it, it could water pick up canals and lakes yeah, and things so like that. That was probably the best thing. It could pick up big big built up areas as well. Yeah. But so. It got you to the right rough location. Yeah. And then there's Oboe as well. Yeah. And of course you've got the Pathfinder. Flying Cigar as well as Flying Cigar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for counter counter measures and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Flying Cigar? Yeah. Don't know that one. Well, it's, it's a, a counter counter measures. Counter it's a counter thing. measures device. One of the things that when I'm talking to people about this is that um, the things that the things that the aircrew didn't do. So like the wireless operator, we were looking at the wireless operator's position. Yeah. But actually because you're flying in radio silence most of the time and you're, you're just on the intercom when you need to be on the yeah. intercom, the wireless operator, he's, he's got far more important roles than being on the wireless. Right. So he looks after the oxygen system on board the aircraft. So he has to make sure that all the oxygen systems are running, everything's flowing, all yeah. the right amounts of oxygen are going. So nobody's getting hypoxia by accident right. while they're flying. So that's one of his main jobs. And the other thing he's got to do is he's got the um, radar tail radar warning radar receiver. So right. he's the guy who tells the rest of the crew when the ME110 is locked on. And we, because, we're just about to get attacked. Because, so that was because what you've job. got is this ongoing, um, uh, uh, you know, it's an arms race, basically, isn't it? A technological race between Bomber Commander, between the Luftwaffe, and you get, you, you know, you've the, 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 the ME-110, which as we all know is a failure as a heavy fighter in, in daylight in the Battle of Britain, then becomes this actually really rather successful night fighter oh. because it's, because it's, Quick enough, because one of the remarkable. Oh well, one of the remarkable things about the Lancaster is how fast it is for a, for a heavy aircraft. <laughs> but the ME110 can keep up, and they've got that Schrager music, jazz thing, which is a cannon firing up upwards. Because so, uh, they've got no armament underneath. Exactly. It. I mean, the weird thing is, is you've got the, you've got the, the the dorsal turret, which makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And they haven't got a ventral turret, which is what you would have underneath. It makes. And again, you've got these which are just complete pea shooters. You yeah. know, you need 50 calibers or cannons really, uh, and these. These 110s and Junkers 88s with their Schrager music come straight underneath them with 30 millimeter cannons. I yeah. mean, these are big old slugs, yeah. and just shred these things yeah. because, of course, the metal. But so the thin. RAF don't know what don't know what's happening for quite a while. The planes are just getting shot down. And they don't know how or why. That's true, but I mean, in terms of the armament capabilities, I mean, the RAF know from the word go that the 303 is Pointless. absolutely useless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Harris spends most of the war lobbying to have better turrets and better armament on his Lancasters and doesn't get it. And it's one of those moments where we always, we always think of, of Harris as being this kind of sort of all-powerful kind of most senior, one of the most senior commanders in the RAF. And he's not quite as powerful as and, and sort of all, as all that. almighty yeah, as all yeah, that. And yeah. he, he can't persuade them. And, you know, lots of crews die but, and are lost because they're just not equipped well enough and that's because a compromise has been made you know if you if, if you add in 50 caliber guns machine guns or cannons they're a lot heavier they're a lot bigger they cause more drag but surely um, taking them all off and making the bomber 10 miles an hour quicker without the weight of three well, that's, guys that's, well, that's, 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 that's a counter argument yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what they're and that's what they're arguing 
and that's why they don't have them. But I mean, you know, these are unpressurized cabins. You know, they're hurtling with, with you know, minus 45, yeah, minus 50 wind, degrees. Wind coming through. You this know, thing. you just look at the attachment of the of the plexiglass, the perspex on the front of this, the bomb aimers at the very front of it, and you can see that. And obviously, it's weathered through. You know, it's worn out through age. But even so, I mean, it's pretty rudimentary, isn't it? It's amazing, really, what they went through. Um, I can see why John likes that Lancaster nose so much. Um, my, really, to be honest, I remember coming and looking at it. I, do I remember that you used to be able to get in the thing? I think you, I think you're a, you used to be able to walk through it. Times have changed, health and safety. Join us after the break. Welcome back. Um, we're still at the Imperial War Museum, as if we'd wander out during the break. Um, uh, there's a little sing-song going over on yes, the corner. Yes, there's... Um, what, what is that, John? What, what? It's, just a, it's just a movie to talk about um, oh, it's morale. Mi mindset. And, and, yeah, mindset. Yeah, the yeah. mindset of the ordinary soldier. Right. So they're having a nice sing-song, a cup of tea and a cigarette. No wonder we won. <laughs> right. Um, they've all got really bad teeth. Got, of course they have. Now, we've, we've come around the corner, away from the nose of the Lancaster, to... To a boat, the littlest little ship, littlest little Tamzine, ship, the littlest little ship of all from the uh, from Dynamo, the, the, yes, the uh, rescuing of the BEF from Dunkirk, and of course, if you were to watch the movie, the Ooh. recent movie, you would think that these were. The, you've seen the movie, John? I've seen the movie. Yes. You, you know, you, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was little ships that rescued three hundred thirty-eight thousand Allied troops, because. That wasn't well, you get right. you get what ten people in this <laughs> if, if you're lucky, and of course the, the, little, quite the little ships journeys. didn't really transport them back to the UK either, was it? The little no. ships transported them out to the destroyers. Five percent tops, off. yeah, tops. Stop it! No, it's true. Stop it! They were big ships. They were big ships. Yeah, and there's a Spitfire film that has about nine hours of ammunition in it. Yeah, as that's well. right. right. Lands annoying. on a beach, yeah, which yeah. did happen, but is completely stupid. You yeah. would never do that with the undercarriage <laughs> down. Why would you? Because you'd risk going nose over. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the. I, I think is it obviously this is a I mean it's an interesting item this because you've got to tell the story of Dunkirk yes this is the way into the story of Dunkirk but it's also as as you two have so ruthlessly and uh, uh, mercilessly um, uh, you've, you've poured <laughs> you've poured loads of uh, uh, water on that um, particular idea but this is this is how a museum like has to work sometimes. Well, you, 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 need, well yes, you need because you can't have a destroyer in here, obviously. What you, you don't, what you don't want <laughs> yeah, to do is some room. <laughs> you don't want to underline an historical or unauthentic piece of information by continually banging on about it. So I don't think we do around here. But I think this is a this is a great exemplar of something else. It's, it's even though there was only a small percentage of these <laughs> doing the job, there were civilians yeah. who just got in their small craft, went over and Mucked risked in. everything. Yeah. And that, that in, in and of itself, I think, is absolutely amazing. You know, one day you're a fisherman off the Kent coast, next day you're under fire getting people out of water. Yeah. Well, one day you're just a civvy who likes mucking around in, in, in boats and tying reef knots and things, and the next minute you're exactly right in the middle of the war zone. So from that point of view, he's absolutely right. I mean, what is really interesting, though, is, is you know, again, there is this sort of, there is this, this, this myth that every time you got into a boat, you were attacked by stokers and sunk. Uh, and actually, although... Well, a large number of ships that were lost um, during the evacuation. No, I should say change that. There were a large number of vessels that were lost. Yeah. Seventy-five percent of those losses were little ships, and seventy-five percent of those losses were down to misadventure. 
Well, collisions and... Collisions, too many people trying to scrabble onto them and all that sort of just sinking because of the yeah. weight of too many men on board and all the rest of it. Because the RAF were doing a pretty effective job of the... The of RAF the were doing a very effective job. You've got 10 tents cloud the whole time, which is exacerbated by the fact that the Germans have bombed the oil depot, so the oily smoke is also kind of clouding it. Also, dead calm sea for literally the entire week. And the first day that the sky is clear is Saturday the 2nd of June. And though they go, okay, well, we'll do a halt to daylight operations, we'll just do it at, at night time. But later that night, the last British troops are, are lifted, and, that, and that's it. And it goes on to the 4th to pick up French troops. But at about 11.30 p.m. that night, um, General Alexander, my old friend Alex, um, and Bill Tennant, who's a senior naval officer there, who's been sent over by Ramsey on the morning of Monday the 27th, um, they go down a little motor launch with a megaphone going, anyone still there, anyone still there? And when they're satisfied that no one is, they go home and they, you know, they signal evacuation completed. I mean, literally every single man, apart from wounded, badly wounded, is, is lifted. It is absolutely remarkable. But no vehicles. How many vehicles did the BEF leave in northern France? Oh, it's a hell of a lot. It's like 40,000. 40,000 or something, or something yeah, isn't it? absolutely enormous. And that's, you know, that, that is the big problem because suddenly we're short of guns, we're short of tanks, we're short of, you know, carriers and all the rest of it. You know, because Britain, the BEF, is the most mechanised army in the world. It's the only 100% mechanised army in the yeah. world. Um, so that is a big problem. They've got to kind of, you know, create those fast. The little ships do play an absolutely enormous part. There's no getting away from it. But it's just, you know, what, what just riled me about, uh, what just riled me about, um, about the film is that, you know, it's just, it's just so misleading. It's just, it, it just implies that it's all, you know, Mark Rylance and his mates kind of lifting everyone off. And that just isn't the case. You know, it is, it is vast majority of the troops that are lifted are lifted by, um, destroyers, channel minesweepers, channel ferries stacked up on the East the thing, Mole. But this thing that we've talked about from time to time, but also that we consistently do ourselves, is the Navy. Um, we don't talk about the Navy. The Navy are absolutely stupendously good. And, and, and central to all the stories we tell. We were talking about North Africa uh, mm. uh, earlier on. How on earth did we get to North Africa? Yeah. I, 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 I ask, you know, by, by ship. And, uh, uh, you know, th th this is the thing that, that so much of the way that the British, um, and I'm not even saying the Allies here, the British fight in three dimensions. Yes. It's because the naval power is and colossal. And also, it also answers the, you know, when, when, when you get into the idea of how come the British state was able to turn things around so quickly and arm itself in a way and, and, and deliver um, in multiple theatres very, very quickly. It's well, because we've been doing that for like two, three hundred years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And because we've had an enormous navy mm -hmm. for two, three hundred years, a vast yeah. navy. And, and the, the, the little, even the story of the little ships ignores the navy. The way people talk about the battle, the way pe the people talk about the Battle of Britain ignores the navy. The way yes. people talk about Normandy ignores the navy. Well, it's okay, a seaborne so landing, for heaven's sake. Now, I've just been doing, I've just been doing, because I've been, you know, since I finished writing Normandy and it came out last year, I've been kind of sort of thinking about it and, and talking about it and so on. And you have sort of more thoughts. So I've been doing some kind of rewrites for the paperback edition. And Am I in one it? of the things, oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> you, you get personal mention. And no, I've already checked. When I was with Al. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that struck me was exactly this, that, you know, the, there's so many arguments and debates about, you know, he had the, you know, Germans were four times better than Allied troops and all the rest of it. You know, we can argue the toss about all that, but one thing that is absolutely 100% certain is that on two planes of warfare in the air and on sea, the Western Allies were absolutely the best in the world, yeah. bar none. Yeah. I mean, naval gunnery, naval seamanship, to, to be able to clear those mines, those minefields, 
before the invasion fleet in Normandy is absolutely astonishing yeah. to do that when you think of the scale of the fleet that's following behind them and what 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 would happen if they get cock it up yeah. and it's at night and it's stormy and all those kind Perhaps of things. Perhaps we should be in HMS Belfast. I think we've come to the wrong museum. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. Well, <laughs> You're excellent. always welcome, gentlemen. But, but also, I mean, if you think about it, you know, I mean, you know, last time I was at Long Sumer, you know, those amazing German um, naval guns on the cliffs, yeah. um, the other side of Aramage. And you look at them, and there on one of the guns, you can see where the shield has been smashed, and you can see where a shell hits the breach. That knocks it out. That's been fired five yeah, yeah. Miles, miles out to sea by HMS Ajax. I mean, that is just astonishing, isn't it? And, uh, you know, they've got no, there's no lasers to guide them or anything like that. That is just. But to come back to this boat, skill. though, the, the point you made earlier, John, mm. that, that you do have civilians taking their boats out and getting involved in the evacuation, because because we are talking about a total war we've we, you know we've looked at we've looked at a a, a a very famous general staff car in our time here a spitfire that james can tell you who that you both can say who flew it a boat that civilians got involved in the war and then a machine for killing civilians the, the lancaster the, the the totality of the of the second world war is that th i think certainly the reason i keep I keep coming yes. back to it as a, yeah. as a topic and why it really is so interesting. It's not, it's not, it's not the old way of doing it that, you know, the, the way, for instance, that Wellington would, would fight with an army that was made up of scumbags and, uh, and, 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 and cutthroats and, and the officer class. It's a total Yes, it's absolutely correct. So in that respect, exactly. And it's right to remember the little ships for that reason, even though they, they don't fit in the story the way that maybe they do in Hollywood. But I mean, that, that's the thing that I think that is really, really, for me, is really incredibly interesting about all of this. Mm -hmm. It's a human drama war, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and the Second World War affects every man, woman and child of all the main protagonist nations in a way that no other conflict ever has. And I think that is certainly what drew me to it in the first place. And it's what continues to be so fascinating. Well, I think that's a perfect point yeah, isn't to it? stop, that felt isn't conclusive, it? Yeah, shut up, it? shut up, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for listening. A huge thanks to John Delaney. And thanks head, to the War Museum for letting us come here. Oh, Second World War, mid-20th mid century, century conflict, conflict 1929. 1929. <laughs> Thank you. Cheerio. Cheerio.